Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts globally, and it is all because of my incredible guests. Every bit of it is because of my guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game, and they're here to and willing, absolutely willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. And these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance. And my guest today is fabled story merchant Ken Atchity, and he has been here twice before. I find him so fascinating that he can come and go at will. He could be my guest every Friday, and I'd be happy with that. But Ken is the head of Story Merchant Books and Atchity Productions, and he has more than 40 years of experience in the publishing world and over 20 years in entertainment. And based on his teaching, managing, and writing experience, he has successfully built best-selling careers for novelists, nonfiction writers, and screenwriters from the ground up. And Ken just shared with me that he will serve as executive producer for Gambino, The Rise, which that book is now on my desk, too. Ken, welcome back. Congratulations on Gambino. Thank you, Denise. It's great to be back, and I uh, always love to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. Ken, I have many of your books, and you have gifted me with many of them and I do thank you for sending it to me. Like I was telling you in the virtual green room, that is on my weekend stack of books to get into. So much appreciated. But your decades have been well spent in the worlds of stories, and you're one of the best storytellers I've ever come across. And that prompted the telling of your own, my obit, Daddy Holding Me. What in the world got you writing your own obituary, basically? Well, uh, I've always thought it was unfair that uh, some, you know, as a writer, to see somebody else writing your obit just didn't make any sense to me. So I thought, well, there's nothing stopping me from doing it myself. And uh, I decided to do it uh, because I thought I had a story worth telling and worth hearing. And I thought nobody could do it better than me. So I, I did it. I decided to do it. 20 years ago, and it took me that long to figure out how to do it and get it going. But uh, I just finished the second volume of it, and uh, this way I'm not limited to uh, 300 words in the newspaper, you know? I can't wait to read that one. I read this one um, over the weekend. I've got it on Kindle as well, so I've got, you know, on Kindle you can bookmark things and copy things, and you ought to see it. It's yellow, 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 yellow all over the place. But you say that a marketing friend suggested a different title, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce some of these things, so I'm going to let you do this. Uh, You mean, yeah, on the back of the book, I I talk about trying to describe the book as my my wrong-born, foghorn, Odyssean, madcap, Lebanese, Italian, Cajun, Jesuit, Narcissistic, Ivy Bush League, Georgetown, Yale, hot-plotted, food-focused, fear-kissed, camel-eating, 
South, Midwest, East, West, nightmare quilted, career changing, cross dressing, dream chasing, runaway Catholic, Hollywood academic, linguistically pluralistic, joko serious, wit lit, niche fleeing, stop watching, big fat, obit. And uh, my designer pointed out she could never get that on the spine of the book. So no, I couldn't we, even we, read it. We decided not to love- do that. Part of it, I was like, okay, just a serious, what the heck is that? I didn't even know what that meant. I had to look it up. <laughs> it means using humor in a serious way. Uh, oh. From what I can Well, tell. I do that I think, all the time. Yeah, exactly. James Joyce, I think, coined the term, but uh, oh. you know, it's, uh, it, it describes things that nothing else can describe. And there are a lot of there are, there are a lot of jokes in the story because I one of the ways I learned storytelling is my family both sides of my family were were jokers they loved telling jokes and back in the days before Twitter and you know uh, every possible kind of social networking and email jokes were a way of everybody networking and keeping in touch mm-hmm. and uh, especially in the south. Yeah, exactly. It was always amazing to me how a joke could travel around, you know, the South within uh, 24 hours. You tell a joke and somebody in Florida, and then at the end of the day, you might hear the same joke from somebody in uh, Texas. And uh, you don't know if it was connected with your telling it, but it's sure something was going on in the in the network. I remember you telling me about your uncle. And he basically taught you how to not be funny. You know, he he just tried so hard, but he couldn't quite get it. Yeah, I had I had two uncles. One one of them was the one you're describing, Uncle Ed. And uh, God God forbid you get stuck in the same room with him when he started telling one of his stories because they lasted forever. They didn't seem to have a point. There was no punchline. Uh, there was tons of detail, which put most people to sleep. And uh, he was—he he went into a kind of a coma when he started telling a joke, uh, and didn't even notice his audience. And to me, that was—he was like the paradigm of the the bad storyteller. And then I had another uncle, my favorite uncle, Uncle Wib, and uh, he was the opposite. When when he came out with his coffee to sit on the front porch, everybody gathered around him because he would start telling jokes and stories, and people were riveted on every word because he was there to entertain his audience, and he could put them in any mood he wanted to put them in within seconds just by choosing the words he chose, the tone of voice he used, and that's where I learned the difference between good storytelling and bad storytelling. And I remember those stories. We, I had one like that. He was Uncle Bob. But I'm talking about your first uncle, your uncle Ed. Uncle Bob could clear a room quicker. And he was a sweetheart. But, oh, my gosh, you did not want to get stuck anywhere near him. But it was just, <laughs> and he never understood it. It was just like he went into just a brain freeze. Like he just didn't, he didn't know, which yeah. I was actually glad that he didn't know because I think if he understood that people couldn't bear to be around him when he got in that that kind of mode, I think it would have hurt him terribly. But he never did catch on as far as we knew. 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's, they're oblivious to their audiences. And to me, the most important character in fiction is the audience. And uh, writers need to learn that before they can go on to a serious com- career because most writers are not born knowing that. They, they, they didn't have the good fortune of being raised on the front porches of Louisiana where I heard these stories told by great storytellers and by bad storytellers. And I started looking at the difference between the two and what they were, you know, what made them good and what made them bad. And uh, we all we all have that kind of relative who you don't want to sit next to him at the Thanksgiving dinner. No, and God bless them. They're sweet people for the most part. I mean, they really are, but there's something wrong with their brain. Is what I finally <laughs> figured out. There's just there was something wrong. With yeah, exactly. It, it it wasn't working. There was something that just was not working. Yeah, that's really true. My, my father was that way. He just couldn't tell a story because he didn't get the rhythm of a story, and he didn't. Oh, rhythm. You know, there you go. Yeah, every story has a rhythm of its own. It starts with a hook that gets you into the story, and then it goes on to a punchline, and good stories can, you know, go on for five, ten minutes, or they can be told in 60 seconds, depending on, you know, how much time you have available to for for the for the audience that you're with, and uh, that's what I love. I mean, I once heard that Einstein never prepared lectures; he just got driven to whatever lecture he was supposed to give. And on the way over, he asked, "What is this audience? And how long do I have to talk? And what's the subject matter?" So somebody would say, "Well, it's high school students, and you've got 20 minutes." And you're going to be talking about uh, relativity, and he would he would tailor his story and he said immediately that would rivet these kids for you know the 20 minutes that he had, and if it was a Nobel Prize speech where he had to speak to this August assembly, and had 45 minutes or an hour, he would give another speech. But he that's all he needed to know, starting with who's the audience. Um, and that, that's a crucial thing in storytelling is know who you're talking to. And I think a lot of people miss that point. Somebody told me recently, because I'm doing my best to write my first book. I've been trying to do this forever. And I'm actually, well, I'm started to say I'm really ashamed that I haven't done it, but I actually am because it's information I have. I have it at the tip of my fingers. I know what I'm talking about. I'm a subject matter expert. I just haven't done it. And somebody told me recently, well, don't write for your audience. Write for you. And because I'm so, so, because I don't know who my audience is, so close to this and I know it so well, why shouldn't I write it in my own first person, if you will? So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, but there's a difference between the the person that you choose, the point of view that you choose, first person is fine, and the audience. You know, writing for yourself, to me, is one of the the worst myths about writing that you learn in fourth grade. Most people learn in fourth grade. Yeah, just write for yourself. And and I don't really agree with that. I think you writing is communication, and you need to write for for an audience. You know, I've written... I think five or six books on writing and I'm writing for writers in those books. And it's very clear who I'm talking to. And uh, 
I used to have a friend, John Gardner, the novelist who did Nickel Mountain and the Sunset Sunlight Dialogues and uh, the Life and Times of Chaucer. And he said that he, he had a, a, a little photograph of his 16-year-old kid above his, you know, his computer. And as long as, as his son was smiling, he kept typing. But if he looked up and he wasn't smiling, then he knew he was on the wrong track. So he had a very clear vision of who he was writing for. You know what I mean? And uh, I think that's essential. Writing for yourself is ends up being, you know, narcissistic and uh, who cares? But um, and you can pretend you can pretend you're writing for yourself, but you're really writing to be heard and to be listened to. Uh, that's what we learned on the, you know, they used to say some people can tell them, some people can't <laughs> when it comes to jokes. Uh, you know, and, and you want to be the ones who can tell them, and that means you got the audience laughing all the way through, um, and, and that means you're you're telling the story for the audience, for the reaction to the audience. You're not like unlike Uncle Ed, who was just telling them for himself, and nobody wanted to hear. You know, wanted to be listening. And see, I'm so glad I asked you that question because I've really been struggling with who is my audience, how do I write this, and then the third part of that is just do it just darn do it and i listening to you i'm realizing that i was going to take the easy way out because it's easy to just write from basically my point of view like i'm writing to myself but i'm not all that interesting so it was a passive aggressive way and going eh, you don't have to do this right now so thank you i'm going yeah, to well, take your advice well i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't put yourself down and say you're not that interesting because you're a great listener and a great listener means that you you've got to ask the questions and and talk the talk to, to make the other person interesting you know so i do yeah thank and you for do, that you do a great job of that i always feel so oh. comfortable talking to you like we're on the front porch you know i know huh? and you, speaking of front porches you were born not too far away from me i'm in lafayette or close to lafayette and you were born just you know, a few miles away. Yeah, in, in Eunice. And, Eunice. Uh, out, yeah, my grandfather's farm was uh, right outside of Eunice in a place called Chitania. And, uh, you know, it's where I, where I came from to begin with. And that's why I learned storytelling because I, yeah. I, yeah, I spent my summers on the farms and you know, my relatives and we I go from one to the other, eating and listening to their stories, and uh, you know some of them were, as I said, good storytellers, and some of them were, were just the opposite. Exactly, and you had sent me, and you gift me the best books. Cajun household wisdom. You know you're still alive if it's costing you money, which is so <laughs> true. Yeah. And I, you know I've got it bookmarked, and one of the things was. In, and I'm not going to even try to say this in a Cajun accent. I'm not Cajun or Cajun. But it says, you think too much, you miss all the steps. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I catch yeah, myself that's... doing that, too. Yeah, it's like you can't think and tie your shoes at the same time. Because, uh, you know, when you if you had to explain to somebody how to tie your shoe, I, I challenge you to, to do that. It's, it would be a very long-winded, complicated explanation. And... Uh, you wouldn't be able to do it while you're tying your shoe because it's the opposite. You know, it's the opposite of storytelling. Giving instructions or writing a manual uh, is not what storytelling is all about. 
So when you went, Ken, you you moved. I mean, you you didn't spend your life in Southwest Louisiana, obviously, and you you've moved. I mean, you've lived many many interesting places. But what got you? I wanted to go back to my obit because it's a fascinating story, and I really I can't wait to read um, the second part of it. And as I was telling you in the virtual green room, part of it had me kind of clutching my stomach, going, "Oh my gosh." You know, I think he's reading part of my story or telling part of my story. And as I shared with you, I don't remember a whole lot of my childhood. It wasn't, it didn't really stick with me. I you know, I, pretty, I probably wasn't a happy child. But some of the, the things that you're talking about with your dad and your mom just really kind of hit me right in the gut. And I suspect well. that's what you wanted it to do. Yeah, exactly. I wanted I wanted people to relate to it. And, uh, you know, I had a, I would call a troubled childhood. And w- what I, how I got out of it was by telling my own story, by paying attention to the details. And I ended up, you know, turning it into this story. Uh, and I just didn't want somebody to, you know, I didn't want the world and, and my huge extended family to not hear that story from my point of view. And I talk about in there that everybody has their own story. My brother had his version of, you know, his version, but it was his story of many of the same events. And uh, I'm sure my mother would tell that story differently and my sisters would too. And, uh, but, but telling your story is one way that you kind of control your life because life generally is out of control. And, you know, when you're telling the story, you're in control and you're making sense out of it all. You know, a story has rhyme and reason to it where life might not. You know, if you start listening to somebody who's not a storyteller telling you what happened to them when they got this illness, you know, you, you can barely keep your eyes open because they don't know how to put it together into a story. They're just giving you one detail after the other, one, one episode after the other. Uh, but, but if somebody knows how to tell it as a story, it's very dramatic. It has a satisfying conclusion. It makes it either inspires you or depresses you, uh, you know, but it's, it's got an impact on you because it's shaped, it's shaped to have an impact. And that means the audience is the right. most important thing about it. You know, it's, it's aimed at the audience and it wants to have them, wants to get them to have a certain reaction. Are and it's, did and I was reading about your brother, and I read the whole book a couple of times actually. And something you just said just now is really important. My brother passed away last year after struggling with a, a double lung transplant for eight years, and he we got to the point the last couple of years of his life because he knew he wasn't going to be around that much longer, and we had never been particularly close, but we got close during the last ten years basically, and. He would tell stories about our childhood, and I'd say, what house were you in? Where did this happen? And then my sister and I would compare the stories, and as you said, they had completely different views, completely different reactions and memories. I mean, both of my, well, I only have one sibling remaining now, but my siblings would always say that I was the favorite child, which I never noticed, because I thought we were all just on the, the you know go to your room list all the time <laughs> so i i never and i argued with my brother until practically the day he died no i was not the favorite child 
I never saw it. They're very insistent that that was true. I don't know how they could tell, because as far as I could tell, we were all treated pretty much the same. Be quiet, don't talk much, go to your room. Again, it wasn't a fun childhood, but we had completely, we would pick, and we would do this deliberately and record these these conversations. We would pick something that happened, and then all of us, the three of us, would you know tell our story, and I was just shaking my head going, I didn't see that. That's not what happened. What are y'all talking about? Mm. But it yeah. was their view, very different from mine. Yeah, no, it's that's that's just an example of storytelling because think about a you know think about a trial, a criminal trial, where um, what basically happens in the trial is an audience, you know, called the jury, sits in a box like a theater, you know, in fact it's called the theater in some some places, and uh, two storytellers stand in front of the judge until you know one of them tells the defendant's story and the other one tells the prosecution story and the people in the, in the box they're trying to decide which story do they believe which story makes the most sense which is the better story which is the most convincing story and that's kind of like human life in a nutshell because when you think about it that when you go out with with somebody for the first time what you're trying to find out is what's your story you know if somebody arrived from a distant galaxy and got out of their spaceship and walked towards you, the two of you wanted to know the same thing, which is what is your story? You know, the arrival person, you know, wants to know what is this, this human story and the human wants to know what is this alien story. Um, so figuring out what your story is, is just, you know, it's, it's like, it's like oxygen, you know, it, it's so basic. Somebody once said the universe is not made of atoms, it's made of stories. And uh, certainly the human universe is like that. Storytelling has been around since man could stand upright and speak. Or even then, if there wasn't language, there were cave paintings. And, you know, there's a lot to go back in our history to find out how we communicated. And it was always through stories, always. Through the Bible, through cave paintings, through... Anything you can think of, it's a story. Now, whether you believe it or not, that's going to be up to you. And you can always change your mind down the road. I've heard stories, read stories, and I'm like, you're right. And then down the road, I might reread it or revisit it and go, oh, okay, now I'm finding a string in that ball, you know, big ball of messy yarn that I can pull on and go a little bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about stories is that they – they have an impact and they evolve so that when writers are writing or you think about it, they, every story that can possibly exist must have been already written long ago, but that doesn't stop writers from wanting to write the story. You know, uh, the myths are myths because they're the universal stories that keep coming back up, popping their way into human experience. And uh, you keep retelling the story, you know, that you, a man against a monster, uh, you know, two, two opposites in collision. There's just a, a limited number of possible stories, but there's an infinite variation on those stories. And we never get tired of them because we want to hear every variation, partly because I think it prepares us to deal with life 
and gives us a reference point to figure things out. You know, we, you, you can take mathematics and you can study, you know, atomic tables, but what you really remember is stories. And uh, stories is how the human race used to communicate before writing was invented. I, I, my first book was called Homer's Iliad, The Shield of Memory, because uh, a, a poem really uh, puts together all the values of the society. And when people are reciting it, they, because they can't read it, it hasn't been written down yet, uh, when it's being re- recited in, in the courtyard, uh, it, it's conveying the values of that society from one town to another, from one city to another, and uh, from one generation to another. And, and I, stories are the stories we share really create our common ground. And uh, when we live in a time that has a very little common ground, like today, it's because none of us are willing, not, you know, that many of us are not willing to accept the other, the other side's story. Uh, and it's a question of what story do you believe? You know, there are people who believe the earth is flat. And if you belong to that flat earth society, nobody in the world can convince you that it's, that it's round. And, uh, and so stories really are the way we shape our reality, perceive it, record it. And, uh, you know, uh, they say, for example, that, you know, history is written by the, by the conquerors, by the winners. Uh, but that's not always true. I mean, take the Civil War, for example. Probably the greatest books about the Civil War were written by Southerners uh, who were not perceived, you know, by the outside world as the winners but who perceived themselves as the winners, and they told their stories in a very moving way. So, yeah, stories are, you can't talk enough about stories because you need to understand them in order to make any kind of decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, if you want to buy a car, you're listening to the salesman's story, and if you don't buy his story, you're not going to buy the car. Oh, no kidding. I've had that happen. And you decided at some point, now I'm guessing in your youth, to become multilingual. So in, you were still talking about the classics and, you know, the myths. I mean, you decided to dive into that, but you had to learn new languages. Yeah, it's funny because I, I always realized that I, I, I learned Greek to read Homer in, in the original language because I didn't want to miss any nuance. I wanted to understand every every scene and exactly the view of, of the, the storyteller. And I, there's only one way to do it, which is to read the original language. And so I ended up learning Italian so I could read Dante and the Divine Comedy. I learned, you know, French so I could read Pantagruel and uh, Gargantua. You know, I, I learned Spanish so I could read Don Quixote. And uh, I even started studying Russian so I could read the poetry of Pushkin. Uh, and there's just nothing like experiencing it in its own language. And, of course, the, the Italians say, tr- you know, a, a translator, traditore, traditore, uh, like a translator is a traitor. Because, you know, you can't possibly render the exact meaning from one language to the other. So it... it, it this is the, the kind of the frustration of the human race since the Tower of Babel, where suddenly people started speaking different languages. And the reason it's so frustrating is that 
they really want to understand each other's stories, but suddenly there was a language barrier. Um, and, and I just think that's a fascinating way of looking at, you know, human history. It is. And living in being born and, and partially raised in southwest Louisiana, one would think that you were probably immersed in Cajun French, which, by the way, for our audience, has nothing to do with French. Nothing. <laughs> you, they cannot. I have been in rooms and in festivals where people were coming from French-speaking countries, you know, Paris. They were coming from, you know, France. They were coming from Quebec. They were coming from all French-speaking countries. And the Cajun people who... They couldn't speak with them. They tried. They tried. Me, being English, I'm standing there between them translating as best as I can because they really could not communicate. It was amazing. Huh. That's interesting because uh, Cajun French is actually kind of a Renaissance French. It's the language spoken, you know, in Canada at the time of the great derangement where the Cajuns came to Louisiana uh, back in, the, in that 16th, 17th century. And uh, it, it's it's remarkable that that it preserved the rhythm of that ancient French. Um, and my my uncle, for example, he, he had to entertain people from France all the time when he taught at LSU, and uh, he found out that he could understand them better than they could understand him. Exactly. Uh, and uh, be, because it was just, but what they were really listening to is kind of an ancient form of their own language that stayed at that level, didn't evolve the same way that modern French evolved in, in France. But it, it's another fascinating thing. It was a, would have been a great cultural loss if, if, if the U.S. succeeded in enforcing the no French laws, which it tried to enforce in the mid-19th century. I mean, mid-20th century, it didn't want anybody to speak French. But fortunately, the Code of Fee of the Society for the Preservation of French in Louisiana kicked in about then and started save, trying to save it and encourage people to speak French. And there's still a good good chunk of people in South Louisiana that speak French, which is wonderful, Cajun French. Right. And it was, you know, there were schools that had Cajun immersion. I mean, they really did not. They were finding, I believe, that some grandchildren couldn't understand their grandparents. They couldn't yeah. understand them. You know, the, there are still, to this day, many older Cajuns who just will not speak English. Yeah. They just won't. My grandmother, my they're dying off, but they're still out yeah. there. Yeah, my grandmother could speak almost no English. I mean, she, she finally, the more grandchildren she had, the more English she spoke. But... Um, it was only out of you know practical necessity. It wasn't because she wanted to speak it, and she uh, you know she, she and all of her siblings communicated with each other in French, and my mother and her siblings communicated with each other in French and to their parents in French. But then they went to school and they were forbidden to speak French um, because they were trying to you know homogenize everybody uh, until 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 the movement came along that tried to reverse that. And it, I'm not entirely sure it's really working all that way and that well. And the only reason I say that is just one one thing that has been told to me, but it made me wonder if people are still just going, well, let's just do it. It's, we're in school, we're going to speak English, but the girl who does my hair, my hairdresser, 
100% Cajun, 100%. She's lovely. Her children and her grandmother just passed away, and oh, you'll love this story. I'll tell it in a second. But her children, who are, are now becoming very close to teenagers, do not speak Cajun French, and she's heartbroken. And now her grandmother is gone. But when she was telling me a story, and the, the stories are great. This will live with me for the rest of my life. She was saying, you know, I was telling her, I saw on Facebook your grandmother died. I'm so sorry because she really loved this woman. The woman was close to 100 years old. And she said when she got to the funeral and she looked at her grandmother in the casket, she was just furious because her grandmother was one of these people. Even in her hospice bed, she had her compact next to her on the little tray table and her red, red, red lipstick. She did not go through life without a red lipstick. And it wasn't on her. And she started shaking and she was upset. Why didn't they make you beautiful? Why didn't they give you your lipstick? And her sister took her aside and said, we couldn't. It was packed in her coffin. Oh, okay. Uh She took it to heaven with her. (laughs) (laughs) She calmed down after that. But it was so important that her grandmother had that red lipstick because it was part of who she was. Yeah, that's a great story. I love it. Uh, When I... You know, I realized growing up that my grandmother was unique because she could, you know, she was not literate um, in English and and really not much in French either. Like, for example, on her phone book, she drew pictures of animals to identify different phone numbers. So her her cousin, Kelsey May, had pigeons. And so she drew pigeons next to Kelsey May's phone number. And you know, one of her relatives had turkeys, so she drew tur- turkeys next to him, and one of them had a lot of cattle, so she drew a couple of cows next to his number. Uh, and But she didn't have any trouble dealing with cards. She understood, you know, she could read cards really well. But uh, what she could do that was amazing is she could recite an epic poem in Cajun that lasted, you know, she could recite it for 45 minutes or longer. She could recite it to the point where, you know, you, your attention span couldn't handle it anymore. So I started taping. I decided to tape it because I didn't want to ever lose the fact that, you know, lose this. And uh, to this day, those tapes are extremely moving to me to to, to know that her mind held all this poetry um, in, a, in it and never forgot a word. And kind of she went into a spell like an ancient bard and, and just started reciting it. And that's an amazing kind of literacy that most of us have lost in the modern world. Oh, definitely. That's, that is a lovely story, and thank you for sharing it. I mean, I don't know my own phone number. I had to change my phone number in October because my cell phone number, apparently it had been sold, and I was getting calls all the time, all the time. It's driving me crazy. And, it, and you know me. My, I do not give out my cell phone number. There may be eight people in the world who have it. I just don't use it for business. I don't give it out. It's very private. But all of a sudden, everybody and their grandmother who wanted to spam me out of something had it. So I changed it, and it took me months to start to remember my own phone number. How pathetic is that? I mean, there's parts of our brain that we're just not using anymore. Yeah, the brain has a lot to do when you think about all the challenges that faces it. And uh, it it has to be efficient, and it takes makes its own decisions about what it's going to remember and what it's not going to remember. I have a funny version of that because 
you know, I, I remember phone numbers pretty well if I've been using them a lot. But if I, you know, if I'm not using them, I don't remember them. But if I go back to Lake Charles uh, or if I go back to Baton Rouge, I suddenly remember all the relatives in town. I remember their phone numbers, which I, you could have asked me two days before I got there, and I wouldn't have a clue. But the minute I get there, I know, you know, I know the phone number. It pops back into my head. And I always thought that was a weird example of how the brain has all kinds of crafty ways of storing stuff and remembering stuff. No, you didn't need it until you needed it, so there it was. Yeah, but it was always nice to see, oh, there it is again. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's not gone. It's certainly not yeah. gone. I'm I'm reading your book, and your name was a big problem for you, the way your mom named you. Yeah, Do you want that, to share that? Yeah, that kind of started the whole mess that was my early life, which is uh-huh. that um, my father was off at war, and uh, he apparently had told my mother to name me after him. His name was Frederick, and uh, and she didn't. She named me Kenneth, and uh, you asked her why, and she just shrugged, and I don't know. I, I don't know. I thought it was a nice name. But my father, when he got the telegram that I was born, just went berserk. I mean, he he felt that she'd betrayed him and uh, blah, blah, blah. And he, he, his, his argument was that this is a tradition in the Atchity family that the firstborn son is named after the father. Like my cousin, you know, my uncle Anthony named his oldest son Tony and my uncle Ed named his you know, oldest son, Edward, et cetera, Victor, Victor. And, uh, but mine, you know, Frederick Kenneth. So he just didn't really own me as his son until three or four years later when my brother was born and he got named Fred instead of me. And this caused a kind of schizophrenia in, in me and in our relationship. So that that's it's a fascinating story and, and, and it, I realize it really did influence my life because it made me choose my mother's values over his uh, because I felt rejected by him because of something that she did without even thinking about it uh, or maybe she did think about it maybe it was an act of rebellion whatever but it, it's you know I talk about it in detail in the book but uh, it's just amazing how a name can change a whole person's life. It can. And when he called you a foghorn, that had me clutching my stomach. <laughs> yeah, that was a, this is why I remember things because I have these visit, vivid scenes in my early, you know, when I, that was like when I was five, I think, or maybe, maybe four. Um, I, he came home from work one day and I shouted some kind of greeting out and he was stressed that day and, out of sorts and told my mother, you know, will you tell that little fog to shut up? And, uh, you know, first of all, he was objectifying me because he could have told me that myself. But, right. you know, then he gave me that name, which was not my name, uh, because he hated my name, by the way, because it, you know, wasn't the name he wanted to have. I, I realized later, which is funny, is that it wasn't an Atchity family tradition because my grandfather, whose name was James, named his first child Anthony. And, you know, he finally had a James that it was five, five boys later. It's like the fifth son was named James. 
So this wasn't a, a long-time family tradition. It was something that the brothers had decided, you know, that they were doing that, but it was only one generation. It wasn't exactly a tradition yet. I guess my father felt that he betrayed his brothers uh, because my mother made this willful decision. And she had a weird name, too. Her name was Mirza, M-Y-R-Z-A. And nobody in the family could explain where that came from. Uh, and one day when I was in my And 40s, your grandmother I, as well. Wasn't your mom a Alachule? Her name was, my grandmother was Alachule, yeah. Lachule, and her name, okay. her, her first name was Maziel. Right. Which, at, which is kind of a recognizable French name, but it's pretty weird too. And she's the one who named my mother Mirza. And uh, I, years ago when I, when I was in my 40s, I was in India and walking through the streets of Old Delhi and found a shrine to a poet named Mirza, spelled the same way. And it was the first time in my life I had ever, uh, you know, seen anybody else named Mirza. So I started doing some Google research and actually found a couple of women. Uh, I think they were both nurses, which is what my mother was, uh, named, named Mirza. And I called them and talked to them about their names. And they had no idea either where they came from. But, uh, yeah, names have always fascinated me because they have histories, whether you like it or not, and they have impact, whether you think about it or not. And you should be very careful and respectful when you name your children. You should. My father, I didn't meet him until I was two years old. He was in the the um, service, and he was in another country altogether. So he, I never met him until I was two. And I was an introvert. I was a born introvert. I was a very quiet child. And for some reason, he decided that he was going to call me Howler, which offended me no end. I'm not a Howler. I mean, I'm still mad at it. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I I had forgotten about it until I read Foghorn. I went, oh, crap. (laughs) That's why I was clutching my stomach. But I was not. And I asked my mother, was I a crier? I mean, what was going on? She said, you didn't speak at all. And I knew that. I just didn't have much to say. I was in my head. I was, you know, I was reading at three. I just wanted people to leave me alone. I was not a whiner or a crier. And I'm still shocked by that. And I guess he thought it was cute. It wasn't cute. Yeah, well, he didn't think about your view of it. See what I mean? He didn't think about the audience. Um, and, and when he pinned that on you, and it's that cuteness is uh, dangerous. You know, it can affect a whole person, a person's whole life. You know, and their experience of life. And uh, yeah, I mean, they the name is you know is a destiny, and it can be a good one or a bad one or one that the person has to wrestle with and overcome, uh, which is what I decided it was in my case. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Nobody dared call me that. He did it, and I would just ignore him. But nobody else had the nerve to say that to me. They knew that it was awful. They knew. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, you could could tell the story at a bar to your male friends, and they'd think it was cute. But it's not cute when it's the person involved and when – you know, your name defines you in a strange way and, and, and in a powerful way. And you, you know, you own your name. That's why 
people sometimes change their names because they're they want to own it. Uh, and if they feel like they're detached from their name, they'll change it. Uh, a lot of that, that's happened a lot in the last 30, 40 years. More and more people changing their names. And uh, why not? I mean, it's, you know, it's always amusing to me how Catholics, you know, are supposed to give you a saint's name. Well, I don't think there was any Saint Kenneth, but um, we all had John as the middle name. And uh, that was a saint. And then when you're confirmed, they gave me another middle name, Joseph, which your confirmation name. And, you know, by giving you those names, the Catholic Church was basically controlling you. You know what I mean? They're, you're being named by a member of the Catholic club for a name, for a member of the Catholic club, a saint. And uh, that gives you this affiliation and allegiance to the church, supposedly. And it's a, really a control device when you think about it. You know, that's why when a king, you know, is crowned, the king takes a new name, just like a pope. You know, the pope takes a new name. And uh, Antonio Bergoglio becomes Pope Francis. And uh, that's a control device. It's a way of showing, you know, that you're in charge of your universe and this is the way it's going to be. And so it's it, it, there's a story behind every name. There is. And what you wrote in your book, it was when you were talking about him saying, can you tell that foghorn to be quiet, or I'm paraphrasing, but you said it was bad enough that he didn't accept your name and that you further realized that your father did not see you as his son. That stuck with you for most of your life, didn't it? It did, it did. And, and, and there was a proof of it that happened. You know, when you have a myth like that that you recognize and live with, there comes a point when you look back on it all and say, Maybe I made that up. Maybe that isn't even true. You know what I mean? Uh, because you, you lose track of what's real and what's remembered and what's fantasy and all of that. But then, again, when I was in my 40s, somebody invited me to my father's, uh, you know, my father, I think. No, he didn't invite me. But my mother told me about a roast. The, it was the place where he worked was roasting him because he was going to retire. And... Uh, during the roast, they asked him to come up and told him they were videotaping the whole thing. And they asked him to come up to the microphone and speak directly to his kids who, you know, who weren't there. So he, he got up to the mic and he looked into the camera and he said, the only thing that's wrong with today is that my son Fred isn't here. Fred, you know, I'm thinking about you, blah, blah, blah. And there was absolutely no reference to me, even though I was the older son. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, there's the living proof that, that what I believed all these years is true. He really doesn't. I'm not part of his consciousness. You know, um, of course, I had to be because I was doing great things at school. And, you know, once in a while, he had to acknowledge that I existed and that I was doing OK. But most of the time, you know, he saw Fred as his son. And he didn't see me as his son. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's weird how human humans evolve. Little things can set them in different directions. And even if you're not looking to prove what may have been a myth or maybe you misunderstood it, probably at some point you're going to be able to go, well, there it is. And that's what happened yeah. with you. 
Yeah, I when I saw that video, I thought, oh my God, there's the living truth that I, that I haven't been based basing my life on a false myth that I made up, but it really is true. And it didn't, but then it made me actually start looking at my father more objectively and looking at it from his point of view and why this happened. You know, he, he, he should have been ecstatic when he heard that he had his son, right? But instead he felt betrayed because my mother kind of thumbed her nose at him when she named me without even consulting him and going against his wishes which she says she didn't remember, you know, she says she didn't remember that he told her that, but of course that is very suspicious because, you know, I it's, would convenient. Think so. it's convenient yeah. when, when people don't we remember, remember what we want to remember. Yeah, exactly. And there's another example of storytelling, you know, memories, even memories are stories because what you remember and how you remember it is you're telling a story to yourself and, deciding that's the one I'm going to put on the shelf here so that later when you look back on a, an event in your life, you pull out that story, you know, it's called a memory, but you pull it out and, and tell it to someone else and they go, well, funny, I was there and I didn't, I saw it a totally different way. And right. that's because My siblings, telling, every yeah, time. Yeah. They're telling their own story, you know, and, and their story is going to be different. I talk about that in the book that every story is different. And I realized my my brother's story was so different from mine. But when I heard him give the eulogy for my father, I realized that he had the very powerful story of his own and that I couldn't hold it against him. You know, it wasn't his fault that he was named Fred. You know, it was my father who made that decision. And uh, he kind of lived up to what he was supposed to live up to and saw everything the way he was named to see it, you know. By the way, to our audience, that eulogy is in the book. One of the favorite things about this book is, and you've always been a hard-working guy. I mean, you I don't know why he didn't look at you and say, wow, I am proud of you, son. But there was a letter from House Cleaners, Inc., dated January twenty-second, 1954, when you were 10 and your brother was 7. I... I've read this several times, and I crack up every time. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, that wasn't made up. It was actually, uh, we we wrote it back then. You know, that's what I put in the book. It's exactly the words we wrote. And uh, it, it showed that we were attempting to get along, despite our being set at odds with each other with our names. But we tried to get along much in much of our life, even though it often ended up in disaster. But uh, it was really my father and mother pitting us against each other because I was in my mother's corner and he was in my father's corner and we had no, you know, no choice in that matter. That was just where we were put, you know. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Did your parents ever figure out what they were doing to the family dynamic? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, they may have figured out, they may have gotten a hint of it or a whiff of it when they got older, but by then it was so set, you know, in, in their minds. Like one time my mother, when, when she was in her 60s, we were walking through a grocery store in Palm Springs, and she helped, reached for our, my hand and said, how did we, we used to be so close, what happened? 
And uh, God, I, that was a that hit me in the gut. That question because to tell her what happened would have been to tell her the story of my life as I saw it. And you don't do that in a in a vegetable bin. You know what I mean? You you don't do that casually. And uh, so I just shrugged and I'm sure what, I probably made a joke. But um, the, I think there was some awareness, you know, that things had turned out strangely because of decisions that were made. But I don't think she had the, or my father, the self-consciousness to analyze it the way I do. Because I, I am like a massive analyst thanks to my Jesuit education. And I analyze anything and everything throughout my life. And, uh, you know, she she and my father didn't have the luxury of analysis. You know what I mean? They they were working hard to survive post-depression, you know, post-war. Uh, and just surviving was a, enough to keep them occupied. So I don't think all this awareness really, you know, was something that they enjoyed or suffered from. It sounds like maybe later in life she started to wonder what happened. You know, where did where did things change and maybe why did things change? She probably, if I had to guess, had some awareness, but not the energy to delve too deep, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. She didn't have the energy uh, or the motivation maybe, which is even sadder for me, but, but I don't think she had the energy to delve deeper and... Uh, it's a good way to put it. Um, but, you know, I, I had to think about before I wrote this, I thought, would she want me to write these books? You know, would would my father understand? And I decided that, yes, I think they would understand, because if you read my the first book carefully, you see that I had a tremendous love for my father that I allowed to come out only later in life because I couldn't express it, you know, in the first 20 years of my life because of his attitude toward me. I was basically cringing and running from him, you know. But the older I got, the more I realized how much he gave me, uh, how much of me is from him, my organization, my discipline, my determination, my drive, you know, my relentless love for work. All this is from my father. And uh, so I think he would, have, he would have understood that this is partly a tribute to him and uh, the second book is focused on my mother. It's called My Southern Bill. And uh, it's the same way. It's critical of her, but it's also a tribute to her because she behaved the way she behaved because she was in a situation that led her to behave that way. And, and I think she did the best she could. I think he did the best she could. He could and, you know, can't blame them for it, but it still had effects. So that's why it's so important that parents kind of be aware of what they're doing. You know, it's just commute. You know, my, my two rules for being a father was support and communicate. Things I have to do is to support and communicate. And, so we're very you know, good for, for the, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say for the audience, it's important to understand too, that your dad was Lebanese, your mom was Cajun French very different cultures. So there was that possibly insurmountable barrier as well. Yeah, they were different cultures for sure. Uh, the energy level, for one thing, was hugely different. 
but they had things in common. There's a French background in both of them. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, a love for cooking in both of them. And there's a love for, you know, storytelling, joking, but in both of them. Uh, but other than that, just about everything else was completely different. The Lebanese love to pursue money and they understand it and they, you know, they're, they're merchants. The Cajuns are not so much, you know, they give them a choice between running the grocery store and going fishing. I think a lot of Cajuns would say, I'm going to go fishing. Go fishing. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what you were talking about a little bit ago about who you are now and how you, you created and crafted your persona and your, how you behave in life when you were talking, when I was reading the book, I went, that's his dad. That's it. Ooh. You know, I could see you in your dad, and I was glad that you could see it as well. Yeah, that's what I learned by writing the book, is I, I learned the more I wrote it, the more the systems, you know, that he taught me. Like, he, he told me to keep a ledger when I was, like, seven years old or eight years old. He showed me how to keep a ledger that kept track of how much money came into you and how much money went out. And I did that every, you know, I did it faithfully and showed it to him every Friday. Uh, and, and he checked it to make sure it was accurate. And uh, then as I started taking jobs, one of my cousins would slip me, you know, five bucks under the table so he'd have some spending money. And I, I had the faith, am I going to write this in the ledger? Because then dad's going to know about it. And then he's going to ask me to account for the $5. And then it's not really spending money after all. It's, you know. So I decided to keep the second ledger that was just for me, and I recorded the $5 in the second ledger, but I didn't record it in the first ledger. And, and I thought I was getting away with something, but then one day it occurred to me that actually he's the one who taught me to keep ledgers, and the very fact that I was keeping two was another, you know, something I got from him um, because I, I just couldn't go without keeping track of things and keeping track of things is one of the huge things that he taught me. Uh, so yeah, I'm hugely grateful to him. Despite it wasn't his fault that this whole naming thing happened. You know, it wasn't his fault at all. It was my mother's fault. But it impacted all of you. Yeah, it impacted everybody. And uh, but anyway, yeah. you know, not really complaining anymore. Just wanted to get the story out. Yeah. When. And I know we've just got a couple of minutes left, but was your father alive long enough to see some of the true impact that you created in the world? Oh, yeah. He, he saw me through getting my Ph.D. In, at Yale and becoming a professor, getting a bunch of grants and awards, uh, publishing a bunch of stuff. and And I think he was even around when I did my first movies, although not very long. Yeah, actually he was because I, I had him come up to Montreal and, and act in a movie. Um, and before that, he thought I was a, completely crazy to give up my tenured professorship. But after he came up to Montreal and saw the 150 people on the set doing this movie and he got to be in the movie, he was so excited that he told me, just keep doing movies, you know, this is great. <laughs> right. So, so you found fun. some peace with each other at some point. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I think we what got... I'm taking from this this autobiography, if you will, this obit, 
is that you were you have taken the time to really study your dad, to study yourself, and now to study your mom and understand rather than just believe the myths or the you know the biases that we all grow up with or create ourselves and you've taken the time to study and understand them and understand you and make that part of your story and I applaud you for that well thank you that was first thing the Jesuits taught us was that the unexamined life is not worth living something that Socrates said and uh, I was a, you know, I took that literally and started examining everything. <laughs> and and I just wanted to be conscious, you know, being evolving toward awareness and consciousness to me is the ultimate human trait. And um, we all need to strive for consciousness because being conscious solves a bunch of problems without even needing to spell them out. You know what I mean? You're just aware of what's going on which is what a good storyteller is, right? He's aware, whereas the bad storyteller is not aware. Um, if you just evolve toward consciousness, you will solve a lot of the, your problems, and the world would be solving a lot of its problems too. Oh, absolutely. Is there anything else in the book that you want to share that I might have, you know, kind of, it's, it's a book. I want people to read it, go find it. But is there anything in particular that you want to share before I let you go? <laughs> Well, I, you know, the, the, a book is written to an audience, and I, what I really love is that when people read it and make a comment about it on Amazon, that's where you can get it on Amazon, and uh, that that is what communication is all about. It's it's how the human race makes progress by passing things on and then reacting to them. So, um, yeah, I'd say if you read it, uh, please tell me what you thought of it on the book. I'm not telling you you have to write me a good review. Uh, any review is that's honest is a good review and uh, it's hugely gratifying. It makes it all worthwhile. Uh, to me, it's never been about money. It's been about communication. Um, and that that's what I'd like to say. is, And it's painful to communicate. And it's also, you're asking yourself all the way through, what's the truth? What is true? know the question that Pontius Pilate asked what is truth Um, we're dealing with that every day in our culture and in life in general and uh, in fact a new book I'm working on is really focused around that question of truth and um, anyway that's what I'd like to say and I really appreciate your interest in talking to me and uh, in general it's just great to talk to you whenever we do well will you come back when the second book is published Sure. You know, I'm asking you on the radio. You can't tell me no. <laughs> I can't tell you no anyway. So, yeah. Okay. It's a fabulous book, and I I will go um, review it on Amazon as well. And by the way, for the audience, if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can download it. Download it free, read it, bookmark it, learn from it, and then go leave a review. So, Ken, what else is going on with you that we need to share, and then I will let you go. Well, aside from the Gambino story, we're raising money for <clears throat> a musical that I, I wrote recently based on the, the songs of Thomas Hoge. It's a Christian rock musical, and uh, we're making progress and in finding investors who can help put us on the stage, a stage play. And I'm excited about that because it's different. I haven't written a stage play before, and... Uh, 
you know, this music was circulating around the, the country and Canada where Thomas is from. And, uh, but, but somebody kept saying, you need a story for this. So I, he brought, he came to me and I provided the story and that, that's exciting to me. And we have. Imagine. It sounds yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And, and Meg too, by the way, the sequel to the Meg, uh, is will be re- released early next year. Uh, it's in post-production now. Shooting is finished. Jason Statham is in it, and uh, that's exciting too, obviously. And uh, a lot of cool things happening and continue to happen. You are so excited. I love talking with you. And for our audience, listen, Ken has been here twice before. We're talking about storytelling. We're talking about all the different things that he's kind of mentioned here before. So be sure to you know look for us. Go into iTunes or Amazon and go anywhere you're going to consume your business podcast and type in his name, Ken Achity, A-T-C-H-I-T-Y. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your journey. But definitely go to Amazon, look at his books, read his books, and learn more because there's a lot of powerful, powerful content in his books. Ken, thank you. It has been, oh, where can people find you before I go? Best way is my email. It's atchity at storymerchant.com. I'm always happy to hear from people and, uh, you know, always happy to talk to you. So anytime you you, you need me to talk, I'm I'm here. I'm going to hold you to that. Listen, it has been wonderful speaking with you, and I thank you for everything that you do in the world and for all of the the wonderful stories and the advice that you've shared with me and our audience. And I am taking you up on that piece of advice. Don't write for myself. Write for the audience. I, you know, I said earlier, I don't think I know who the audience is. I lied. I know exactly who they are. I just yes, don't yeah. want to do the work. So there yeah. you go. And remember what the being great lazy. American- the great American writer Walker Percy said, the, "The secret to perhaps the secret to talking is having something to say. And if you you have something to say, you need to to say it to the people who who want to hear it. And you know who they are. So don't hesitate. I do. And you know what I have found too. And this is completely." not really off topic, but I find that when I sit down with my keyboard, I can create an epic blank page. But if I'm talking to myself and I'm speaking it out loud, it flows. So I'm recording everything and then transcribing it. That's That seems to work best for me. That's perfect because you're, you've learned how to, how to harness your process uh, in a way that's comfortable to you. And that, that's the secret to you know, productive writing. Uh, so, thank yeah. you. Thank Trust you so much. You're welcome. Say it again. I say well, I really to... appreciate it. <laughs> we keep process. interrupting each other. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, we're excited. So there it is. Again, thank you so much. And I definitely want you to come back when the second part of your bit is done. And honestly, anytime you want to come back, you know where to find me. You know my phone number. Just pick up the phone and call me and tell me you've got something to share. But in the meantime, everybody go look for us in iTunes everywhere. Look for your partner in Success Radio, and we will be here for you again. Ken, thank you so much. I love talking with you. Well, thank you, Denise. It's been delightful, as always. Look forward to the next one.
Me too. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.